Chapter twenty six, sections five and six of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Student's Roman Empire, Part two, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter twenty six. The Principate of Hadrian. Section five. Hadrian's Administrative Reforms The reign of Hadrian marks, in some important respects, the beginning of a new stage in the development of the Principate. In the course of imperial history we have observed two great tendencies. One, the encroachment of the princeps on the functions of the Senate, and the consequent advance towards pure monarchy. Two, the levelling of the distinctions which existed between Rome and the provinces, Previous emperors promoted one or other of these tendencies by fits and starts, and sometimes unconsciously. Domitian took a great and deliberate step in the direction of absolutism. Trajan, the Spaniard, made a serious advance towards equalizing Italy with the other subject lands, but under Hadrian these tendencies assume a systematic form, and it is to be observed that this side of his policy is largely a result of very important administrative improvements which he introduced. Not only his interest in the welfare of the provinces, but also his creation of an administrative machinery, which had hitherto been a conspicuous want, promoted the tendencies which have been mentioned. The equalization of Italy and the provinces was forwarded by placing Italy under the control of four judges of consular rank, this institution was a step further in the course which Trajan had inaugurated by his appointment of Curatoris Republicae. But while the curators exercised control only in the sphere of municipal administration, the judges usurped important judicial functions which had hitherto belonged to the local magistrates and had often been very badly discharged by them. The chief matters which came under the cognizance of the judges were the nomination of guardians, cases of fide commissa, and disputes connected with a decurionate. The districts in which these officials operated do not seem, at first, to have been strictly separated. This institution not only affected the position of Italy by placing it more directly under imperial control, but also affected the Senate by excluding that body almost completely from interference in the affairs of Italy, which had hitherto been looked upon as a specially senatorial domain. There also seems to have been some attempt made to introduce the same institution in the provinces. Under Hadrian, the provincials enjoyed great prosperity. We have seen that, by visiting them himself, he became acquainted with their needs, and spared no pains in furthering their welfare. He exercised a sharp control over the governors, and under his rule we hear of no cases of extortion. He employed special officers to check the finances of the town communities, it was his policy to increase the number of Roman cities, and this policy was especially pursued in Pannonia, a part of which seems to have been added to Italy. It was a natural consequence of Hadrian's constant and extensive travels in the provinces, and also of his talent for organization, that he should develop, extend, and place on a new footing the cursus publicus, or state post, which had been instituted by Augustus. Trajan had done something for its improvement, but Hadrian made it a fiscal institution, and thus relieved the local corporations of the expense. He also seems to have introduced definite districts and prefects. 
Perhaps the most obvious deficiency in the political machinery of Rome under the early emperors was the want of a regular civil service for carrying on the work of the central government at Rome. The Senate had its officials, but the emperor, on whom practically the whole administration had come to devolve, had no recognized body of public servants at his disposal. His correspondence and his finances were conducted by private dependents who had no recognized official position, generally freedmen and slaves. But since the time of Claudius, some of these officers, the Ab Epistolis and the A Libellis, had been occasionally entrusted to persons of equestrian rank. Hadrian adopted this exceptional practice and converted it into a permanent principle. Henceforward, freedmen were excluded from all important administrative posts, and only knights appointed. By this means, an official body of civil servants was organized, and there was a definite career of civil service, with regular grades of promotion, open to knights, who were thus no longer obliged to begin with military service in order to obtain civil appointments. The highest procuratorship in this career was that of the imperial fisc. The increased importance which the reforms of Hadrian gave to the knights, also a tendency which can be traced from the beginning of the empire, was a further blow to the senate, and it is worth remarking that the only extensive command delegated by Hadrian to a subject, somewhat like that which Corbulo held under Nero, was given not to a senator, but to a knight. To Q. Marcius Turbo was committed an exceptional control over the two Pannonian provinces and Dacia. In the same connection it must be observed that the power of the Praetorian prefect, who is necessarily not a senator, is recognized under Hadrian in quite a new way. The influence of this officer had already made itself felt on several occasions, but it was an influence which depended on the character of the prefect, and also on the character of the emperor, rather than on the office itself. Thus, Sejanus under Tiberius, Titus under Vespasian, Tigellinus under Nero, were the most powerful persons in the empire, next to the emperor. But other prefects had exercised comparatively little political power. The importance of the prefecture, as such, was first openly recognized under Hadrian. The prefect now appears as the second man in the state, and his relation to the princeps was compared with that of the master of horse to the dictator. He begins now to acquire that competence in civil and criminal jurisdiction which led up to his becoming, in the following century, a supreme judge of appeal. Augustus had been in the habit of summoning a concilium to help him in the decision of the cases which came before him. But this body was informal, it had no place in the constitution, and the princeps was not in any way bound to consult it. Moreover, it was not defined either in point of number or by any qualification for membership. It was composed of the friends of the princeps. Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, Vespasian, Domitian, and Trajan had adopted this practice, but none of them gave the concilium a definite organization. This step was reserved for Hadrian. Just as he had seized the floating idea of employing the inquestion order for the civil service, and realized it as a definite system, so he seized the informal habit of summoning experienced friends to give legal advice, and organized a permanent institution. The new council consisted of men of senatorial and equestrian rank, formally appointed and in receipt of a salary. They were called Consiliaria Augustae. The approval of the Senate was necessary for their appointment, a concession on the part of Hadrian to the Senate, but one of little political importance. 
they were obliged to hold themselves constantly in readiness to attend the emperor in the palace. The council was largely composed of experienced jurists. It does not seem that Hadrian gave greater weight to the senatorial members, but he respected the privileges of senators, in so far that in trials where they were concerned as parties, only those councillors who belonged to senatorial rank sat in judgment. There is no evidence to show that the council had any power to act in the absence of the emperor. On the contrary, it seems, sometimes at least, to have accompanied Hadrian in the provinces. Having thus surrounded himself with jurists, Hadrian exercised great influence on law. He made two very important changes. One, the jus respondendi, or right of replying officially to queries on legal difficulties, was granted to a number of skilled jurists, prudentes, and when their opinion was unanimous he gave it the force of law. This did much to encourage legal studies. Two, the perpetual edict of the praetors was reduced to a final form. Salvius Julianus was entrusted with the task of editing and coordinating in a consistent form the immense body of law which had gradually grown up by the edicts of successive praetors. A senatus consultum, 131 A.D., gave the force of law to Julian's edition of the edict, which may be considered as the earliest approach to the corpus juris civilis. Henceforward, law could not be modified by the praetors, but only by the legislation of the emperor or the senate. All the praetors and provincial governors were bound to act strictly in accordance with the edict. But while Hadrian governed as an autocrat and worked towards the political annihilation of the senate, he treated that body and its individual members with the greatest deference and courtesy. He followed Nerva and Trajan in admitting no charges of maestas. He deigned to admit the best of the senators freely to his private society. He repudiated the games of the circus voted in his honour, excepting those on his own birthday only, and often declared publicly that he would so administer the republic that it should know that it belonged to the people and not to himself. As he made himself consul thrice, so he advanced several personages to a third consulship, and the number to whom he granted a second was very considerable. His own third consulship he held for four months only, and in that time sat often in judgment. He always attended the regular meetings of the Senate, whenever he was in or near the city. He cherished highly the dignity of the order, and was chary of admitting new members, so much so that when he thus advanced Atienus, who was already prefect of the Praetorians, and enjoyed the triumphal ornaments, he showed that there was no higher eminence to which he could exalt him. He expressed his detestation of princes who paid the Senate less deference than he showed himself. To Servianus, his sister's husband, whom he treated with such respect as always to meet him when he issued from his chamber in the morning, he gave a third consulship, unasked, taking care that it should not coincide with his own, that Servianus might never be required to speak second in debate. But notwithstanding all his endeavours, he was unable to win the confidence of the Roman nobility. In the history of the financial administration of the empire, Hadrian's reign is very important. As we have seen, the financial minister was no longer a freedman, but a knight, and the financial bureau became a definite branch of the civil service. A very large body of officers were employed in it, and the administration was carefully watched by the emperor himself. The old system of farming the revenue, which had been gradually becoming superseded under the empire, was now almost entirely abolished, and all the taxes, even the vicesima hereditatum, 
were collected directly by the imperial procurators. To represent the interests of the imperial treasury in lawsuits, special officers called advocati fisci were appointed. At his accession, Hadrian found that the enormous sum of nine hundred million sesterces was due to the fiscus as arrears of taxes. It was quite hopeless to recover this sum, which covered the previous fifteen years, and the emperor boldly and wisely remitted it, and erased the debt from the state accounts. 118 A.D. The bonds were publicly burned in the form of Trajan. To prevent the accumulation of bad debts, and also in the interests of equity, Hadrian ordained that arrears should be examined and the taxation revised every fifteen years, so that account could be taken of changes in the value of money and property, and the taxes regulated accordingly. Hadrian also remitted in Italy the Orm Coronarium, which the subjects were expected to pay to a new emperor. In the provinces he reduced its amount. He always refused to accept inheritances willed to him by citizens who had children, and he often remitted part or even the whole of the property of men condemned to confiscation in favour of their sons. I prefer, he said, to enrich the state with men than with money. He occasionally, but not often, spent large sums on magnificent spectacles such as the populace loved. Once he exhibited gladiatorial combats for six successive days, and he once celebrated his birthday by the slaughter of a thousand wild beasts. The growth of humanity in the treatment of slaves has already been noticed. It was a conspicuous feature in the legislation of Hadrian, and marks a reaction against the policy of Trajan, who in this respect was inclined to be retrogressive. Hadrian revived the old law that a master could not kill his slave, but must hand him over to the law, and he punished the ill-treatment of slaves. He condemned to five years' banishment a matron who had cruelly treated her maids. He forbade the sale of male or female slaves for immoral purposes or for employment in the arena, and he forbade human sacrifices to Mithras and Baal. The cruel practice of putting all the slaves to death in case of a master's murder was modified. Only those were to suffer who were near enough to give their master help if they had chosen. Hadrian also introduced a number of small reforms intended to improve the manners and morals of his subjects. The public baths were subjected to a stricter supervision. Senators and knights were compelled to wear the toga in public, except when they were returning from supper. And the emperor himself always wore the national dress when he was in Italy. He was punctilious about etiquette in other ways, too. On one occasion, seeing a slave of his own walking familiarly between two senators, he ordered his ears to be boxed with an injunction not to walk between men whose slave he might live to become. He endeavoured to repress luxury in food after the fashion of the ancient republic. He facilitated traffic by forbidding great vehicles, which blocked up the narrow streets, to pass through Rome. In regard to the elementary institutions, the work begun by Nerva and Trajan was carried on. More money was advanced, and it was definitely prescribed that boys up to the age of eighteen and girls up to fourteen should receive the elementary support. In the number and magnificence of the buildings erected throughout the empire under his auspices, no emperor surpassed Hadrian. There is evidence to show that building was never more active in the capital than under his reign, though we cannot follow in detail his smaller works. He did much in restoring and improving older buildings, 
such as the Pantheon of Agrippa and the Basilica Neptuni in the campus, and the Forum of Augustus. He built, as in duty bound, a temple to his father, Trajan, and this was the only one of his edifices on which he had inscribed his name. But his two great buildings were the Temple of Venus and Roma, and his mausoleum. The Temple of Venus and Roma was built on the eastern slope of the Velia, just above the site of the Colosseum. In order to make room for it, the Colossus of Nero, which still stood on the site of his demolished palace, and which Vespasian had converted into a statue of the sun, had to be removed to lower ground near the Colosseum. The new temple was built according to an architectural design of Hadrian's own. It was a double temple, with its two cells, apsides, placed back to back, facing east and west. It was the largest and most splendid of all the religious buildings of Rome. Its ruins still remain. The temple was in an open place surrounded by porticos, and thus resembled the imperial fora. Moreover, the imperial fora were all dedicated to deities who stood in special relation to the greatness of Rome, Venus Genetrix, Mars, Pax, so that Hadrian's temple to Venus and Roma resembled them also in this point. It may be regarded, then, as part of a series of buildings of a special kind stretching from the Campus Martius to the Esquiline. There was indeed a great gap between Hadrian's temple and Vespasian's, but this was filled up at a much later period by the Basilica of Constantine, and then the series was completed. This temple was dedicated in 128 A.D., 21st of April, on which occasion Hadrian probably accepted the title of Pater Patriae, and permitted Sabina to receive the title Augusta. The district beyond the Tiber had been gradually losing its rural appearance and becoming an important suburb of Rome. Communication between the city and the Vatican region was facilitated by a new bridge which Hadrian built across the river, where it takes an easterly turn and skirts the Campus Martius on the north. At the further extremity of the Pons Elias, as it was called, he erected in the gardens of Domitia an immense mausoleum, known as the Molas Harianae, which played a part in modern history as the castle of St. Angelo, and is still an important strategic point as well as a conspicuous object in Rome. Consisting of a square structure below, and a massive dome, crowned with the statue of Hadrian, it outdid in size and splendour the burying place of Augustus, which was over against it on the other side of the river. The building was not finished at the emperor's death, and was completed by his successor. It was the burying place of the emperors for the rest of the second century, and even longer. Section 6. Last Days of Hadrian When Hadrian returned to Rome at the beginning of 134 AD, he did not again quit Italy. His health was giving way, and he spent much of his time at his magnificent villa at Tiber. He is said in these last years to have been suspicious, jealous and cruel, and to have put to death or disgraced distinguished men who had committed no fault but that of awakening his suspicions. How far these accusations are true, how far they are the calumnies of the senatorial party who hated him, it is impossible to determine. The fact remains that Hadrian conspicuously failed to conciliate the aristocracy, and for this misfortune he was doubtless himself largely to blame. As he had no children, and felt that his health was precarious, he made provision for the succession to the Principate by adopting, in 136 A.D., L. Caonius Commodus Verus, a son-in-law of that Negrinus who had conspired against him at the beginning of his reign. 
this choice seems to have been highly unpopular, and the emperor was compelled to buy the goodwill of the soldiers and people for his new son by bestowing immense donatives. Men of approved ability like Catilius Severus, the prefect of the city, or Platorius Nepos, who had done good work in Britain, might feel indignant at being passed over in favour of a youth who was only distinguished for his handsome figure and his luxurious life. But Servianus, the emperor's brother-in-law, felt the adoption of Verus as an injury. For though he was ninety years old, and could not hope to become emperor himself, he had a grandson named Fuscus, on whom he would doubtless have wished Hadrian's choice to fall. Their disappointment must have betrayed them into something more decisive than mere murmurs, for they were both executed. It is not credible that, unless there was some overt act of conspiracy, Hadrian would have increased his unpopularity by killing an old man of ninety. About this time the Empress Sabina died. She had accompanied him on some, at least, of his journeys, but his relations with her were never satisfactory. She was suspected of infidelity, and, whether these reports were true or not, she seems to have heartily hated him. On her death, rumours were spread that she had been poisoned at the Emperor's instigation, or that she had killed herself on account of his ill-treatment. In adopting Verus, Hadrian made him assume the name Caesar, but did not at once raise him to the position of consort. Thus a new significance was given to Caesar. It meant the prospect of becoming Augustus. A special command in the Pannonian provinces was assigned to L. Aelius Verus Caesar, as he was now called, and he showed there that he was not incapable. He received the tribunician power before the end of 136 A.D., and held the consulate for the second time in the following year. We cannot tell whether Hadrian was wise or not in selecting Verus, for he fell sick and died prematurely. It seems to have been a man of pleasure, but, like Otho, he may have had a strain of vigour, too. Curious anecdotes are told about his voluptuous life. He is said to have recommended himself to the emperor by the invention of a pasty which became the favourite dish at the imperial table. He was wont to take his midday rest with his concubines on an ample couch enclosed in mosquito nets, stuffed with rose leaves and strewn with a coverlet of woven lilies, amusing himself with the perusal of Ovid's most licentious compositions. He equipped his pages as cupids with wings on their shoulders and made them run on his errands with a speed which human muscles could not maintain till they dropped. When his spouse complained of his infidelities, he gaily bade her understand that wife is a term of honour, not of pleasure. When Hadrian heard that Verus was sick and likely to die, he was sorely disappointed and lamented aloud that he had spent so much in donatives and leant on a rotten wall. The bitter word was reported to Verus and made his illness worse. He died on January 1st, 138 A.D., and was buried in Hadrian's mausoleum. It was impossible to let the empire devolve immediately upon his son Lucius, who was only a child of seven years. Accordingly, Hadrian chose T. Aurelius Fulvus Boionius Antoninus, a man of consular rank, who had reached his fifty-second year, and seemed in every way a safe choice. Hadrian, on January 24th, his own birthday, notified his intention to the Senate, and recommended Antoninus. When, after a month's consideration, Antoninus consented to accept the honour which was proposed, he was duly adopted, February 25th, and was at once raised to a higher position than Verus had occupied, 
receiving the proconsular imperium with the title imperator and the tribunician power. He was thus a consort in the full sense, and all that still failed him was the title Augustus, and probably the special privileges conferred by the Lex the Imperio. The new Caesar was childless, and Hadrian called upon him to adopt two sons, in order to make the succession sure. The imperial choice fell on M. Annius Verus, a youth of eighteen years, and nephew of Antoninus, and on the son of Lucius Verus, who, through his father's adoption, was grandson of Hadrian. By these acts of adoption, Marcus received the name M. Aurelius Antoninus, and Lucius that of L. Elius Aurelius Commodus. Neither of them bore the name Caesar, as long as Hadrian lived, and their father, Titus, was only a Caesar himself. The appointment of Antoninus was highly displeasing to Catilius Severus, who was the maternal great-grandfather of Marcus, the prefect of the city. He aspired to the principate himself, and now showed his disappointment in some way, which caused Hadrian to deprive him of his office. The illness of Hadrian, which seems to have been dropsical, induced him to seek relief in the salubrious air of Bay, and Antoninus was left at Rome to conduct the government. But change of air proved as useless as medical advice. He resorted to the aid of magicians, and even besought his servants to put him out of pain by killing him. The curse which his brother Servianus had called down upon him, that he should pray for death, but should be unable to die, was literally fulfilled. Death at length freed him from his suffering on July 10th, 138 A.D. In his last hours, in a happy moment of inspiration, he composed some verses, an address to his soul, which has become famous. Animula vagula blandula, hospes comesque corporis, que nunc abidis in loca, palidula rigida nudula, nec ut soles dabis iocos. Few principates have been more important in results than that of Hadrian, which lasted nearly twenty-one years. The creation of a regular civil service was destined to transform completely the character of the principate, and work in the same direction as the idea which animated Hadrian's policy of governing the whole empire as homogeneous. Both these tendencies were opposed to the maintenance of the power of the Senate. What Hadrian did for the defence of the frontiers and the reform of the army also stamps his reign as an epoch, and his limitation of the name Caesar to the chosen successor was a change, though only formal, of some significance. End of chapter 26